This episode is brought to you by Commedia dell'arte, the theatrical entertainment providers of dramas cast by actors who improvise in the street based on a broad outline or coaching from a narrator. Anyone who's taken their family to a Broadway play or musical knows what a hole those tickets will leave in your budget. I'm sure there are major production costs to getting cats to sing in verse, but who knew it could be so expensive to get 18th century gentlemen to rap? Well, Commedia dell'arte has brought thespianism to the common Joe. By dispensing with the frilly overhead of an enclosed auditorium, a script, rehearsals, or actors who have any idea of what they're doing, or even advance notice that they'll be expected to do it, Commedia dell'arte has brought ticket prices down to as low as a couple chickens or a basket of spoiling fruit. You might want to bring some extra change if you'd like to see the ending, though. Commedia dell'arte does ask that you check under your seats after the show to ensure you haven't forgotten any infants or toddlers. They're not an orphanage. And thank you, Commedia dell'arte, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Let's see. Remember that in last episode, Craig, I said that the fact that, you know, traditionally, since an executed exultant is permitted to ride his destrier away and the remains are returned to his family rather than have the body dragged away by a dray animal, mm-hmm. that is at least a weak argument against Thecla being buried in the necropolis. Hmm. Yeah, well, let's see that one. Well, on Reddit, Cody Martin says, nay. (laughs) He doesn't think normal rules would apply to someone imprisoned at the Citadel for the crime of treason. Uh, Also, she was sentenced to die by the revolutionary to be tortured to death over a period of weeks. This, as opposed to Agilis, who got a quick death by beheading. The means of Thecla's death imply that she was meant to die with less dignity than a murderer. And finally, considering what they do with bodies to obtain information, it's probably strategically foolish for them to return her body to her family. So, yeah, point taken. Yeah, and the fact that she's in the tower and sent away and it's not a public execution, that Severian could well just be talking about public executions at that point. Yeah, Right, yeah. I mean, if they were worried about that, though, it would have made sense to destroy your body entirely. But as Severian mm-hmm. noted, the tower isn't a prepossessing place. On the other hand, I could come up with a story that the imprisonment, execution, and convenient burial of Thecla in the Acropolis was all a manipulation of Severian anyway. So yeah, point taken, Cody. Gosh, Cody, I was just trying to be fair. <laughs> but I think all of his objections are valid. Uh, Craig on Reddit, Boom Bap Trap Rap, uh, Bibbidi Boppity Boo, was inspired by your Jungian analysis of Severian to take a deep dive into Jungianism. Sweet. Is that right? Jungianism? I've, I've seen that before. I don't know okay. what the, the actual <laughs> favored term is. We'd have to ask yeah. the Jungians. <laughs> Jungianists. 
He came up with a biographical nugget about Carl Jung. Quote, Jung also regularly fantasized about living in a citadel that would shield him from the world. And uh, he posted an article in Medium where he got that quote. And I'm going to put that in the show notes. Interesting. I actually have learned about the Red Book and the Black Books, which were his sort of personal dream journals and his discussions of oh. sort of mental problems. And I didn't recall that coming up because I haven't actually read the things, but I've been reading about them. But um, that would be interesting just because I'm, I'm kind of, this is totally off the topic of Wolf, but now I'm just fascinated by how his personal life affected all of his ideas in different ways. And Severian has a brown book. That is true. Angus Townsend on Facebook posted a curiositus earthus as to whether Agilus's face were Kim Lee Song's, and if upon encountering Asia, who had the same face, Jonas would have recognized his old shipmate's face. But as Henry Eisler noted, Jonas does see Asia outside the Saltus mine after Severian defeats her assassins, and he doesn't notice anything like that. But then, if Agilus's face were not his own, I don't know, we're falling into a vortex here. Anyway, there's nothing to build on from there. Yeah. And it's it's weird. I mean, there, there are all kinds of questions about who Jonas recognizes and he doesn't because it seems like Heather doesn't want to get close to him, right? Like he only approaches Severian when Jonas mm-hmm. is, is away or, or in the other side of the antechamber when they get there. So it's there's that aspect to it. But yeah, it's just hard to know. We just never really get a chance apart from that one that one scene where I guess, I mean, it, it's at night, right? When, when he sees her, but you know, he could have seen her, he could have right. noticed, but I don't remember any real sort of hesitation or anything on his part in the conversation that he and Severian have after, but I don't know. We'll have to pay attention to that when we get there. Yeah. Last episode, I suggested that I'd really like to do a series of bonus episodes where we go through Jorge Borges's uh, Fictionis short stories. I have no idea whether I just pronounced that right or not. That would be fun. Well, Marcus Cavea hit pause on the episode, put down his earbuds to shoot us an email to say, yes, do it. (laughs) And then he included information that he says he wrote last year, quote, after a binge on Borges that followed finishing the Book of the New Sun just days before the release of the first episode of this podcast. He says, Quote, after finishing New Sun again, I picked up Castle of the Otter. In that book, Wolf points to Borges a few times, including the story of Funes el Memorioso, as an inspiration to the Book of the New Sun. Funes, of course, is a man who never forgets anything, who is literally burdened by memory. So Marcus goes on. But I was struck by how many stories in Ficciones have a connection to the new sun, the library of Babel and its infinite books. You know, Craig, we discussed that in chapter six episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Marcus says, but there are many others. The circular ruins features a character who brings a dream into being a la the Brown book story, the tale of the student and his son. And in mysterious ruins, no less the audit of Herbert Quain's Ouve is possibly the most interesting connection. Quain is experimenting with the possibility of writing the beginning of a story after its ending. He writes a book 
where the ending is fixed, but there are a number of ways to get to the end, each with its own meaning. Note that this is not too far away from the Herodules' own position. They know that an autark who brings the new sun is coming. The question is only how and how to edit the stories so that they come out right. I'll note that Wolf himself, I don't know if this was in Castle of the Otter, suggested that writers know how their story is going to end and write backwards from there. And in that way, they'll ensure that they have a satisfying ending. Marcos also says, quote, Master Ash is another example of where fiction and time traveling come into play. And he says, I don't think every story there has a direct connection to the Book of the New Sun, but I do think there's room for doing a closer reading of Borges' influence on Wolf. The main theme of Fixionis is to consider situations in their extreme form, memory, repetition, letters, and so on. The inhabitants of the Library of Babel know that every possible book exists. The inhabitants of Babylon know that every chance occurrence is determined. Funes remembers everything that happens. Borges repeatedly imagines a scenario and then takes the limit to infinity to see what it means. I find that a helpful way of thinking about Wolf's vision of what's happening in Severian's life. I'm not sure what the limit case is of, however, is it repentance? Is it editing a life? Both have purgatorial aspects to them, but there is certainly more to be mined here. I have not even touched on the book of imaginary beings or on Borges' obsession with mirrors, and not even on Wolf's own suggestion that one might invent Borges as a fictional character. All that to say, there is definitely a show to be had here. Well done, Marcus. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm on board. <laughs> it would be great to do it after we get through New Sun, just so that I'd have so much everything kind of like right at mm. my fingertips. Because then I'm sure there may be other things. Because certain things that people obviously recognize, like Ulton and the library. But it would be so fun to find some other things that no one maybe has mentioned before, just because haven't read them in proximity or been looking yeah. for them. But yeah. I would not be surprised. Yeah, with the with the way the kinds of things that. Uh, he put up just there and just knowing that we know he was reading Boreas at the time, I yeah. would not be surprised if we could find all kinds of other things, um, especially in the Brown books. It seems like there ought to be something even more in the Brown books. I mean, sure. I, I certainly feel like the, the story of the mirror is something that is tied to those, those mm. weird mirror world creatures a little bit somewhere yeah. in Borges story. Not exactly, but somehow so that would be really cool to know in the other ones but yeah maybe we'll yeah. we'll we'll put that on the uh put that on the to-do list yeah i mean obviously i'm up for it we'll see i checked and there do not appear to be any english language borges focused podcast so perhaps we can take that up as well in a bit pieces that'd be cool we just need to find someone who speaks spanish oh if only <laughs> <laughs> Finally, a little off-podcast self-promotion here. Uh, Jonathan Laidlow and Nigel Price of Alton's Library published my review and analysis of Gene Wolfe's A Borrowed Man. And you must go read it now. <laughs> Turn off this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do that. I, I give my assessment of the book, and no surprise to anyone, I get right up to my ears in theory spinning. So if you haven't read the story, know that going in. But if you do take the time to read it. I hope you'll get back to me and tell me what you think. I hope it will inspire people to reread the book. 
it's not a long book, and examine it with a different perspective and hopefully help me understand it better. Yeah. And you and I had a lot of conversations about it, just trying to figure out things as you were writing it. And it'd be fun to really open that up because I, I noticed like on Reddit, a few people have tried to start some borrowed man conversations and they go a little bit, but I get the sense that not a whole lot of people have read it, have actually mm-hmm. finished it because it doesn't seem like that uh, even when it was coming out and then even when Interlibrary Loan was out, there just wasn't a huge clamor uh, for discussion of it. But yeah, you know, so I, I, I think it'd be fun if more people would, check that out and respond and, and get some ideas flowing. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, having read it with this in mind, with the, the theories and, and such, I really feel like it's excellent earthless fodder. It's something that could be, um, you know, beaten around by a group of people for a long time. And yeah, I don't know. I, I really need some help on it. Yeah. Lots of questions for interlibrary loan too. I mean, obviously, cause you know, interlibrary loan, especially if you haven't read the end of interlibrary loan, things just get compressed really quickly. Right. So, yeah. but, uh, so there's definitely mysteries there just from the way it's, uh, but, but still in borrowed man, absolutely. Some questions and confusions over some basic what happened kind of questions. Yeah. And someone, uh, mentioned on Reddit, we posted a link to the story on the rereading wolf podcast subreddit. And somebody said, you know, do you think that A Borrowed Man and Interlibrary Loan are kind of a a, a pair, you know, like uh, Soldier of the Mist and Soldier of Rite? And I, I definitely think they do, especially since there is one set of family characters who seem to show up in both places. Yeah. And figuring out that link is important but we haven't quite figured out what the link is, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but it's obviously there. Yeah. And definitely. And good news is that if you check out the review of a borrowed man, you can wait two weeks and then somebody at Alton's library is going to do a review and a similar piece on interlibrary loan. Imagine that the synchronicity <laughs> that it also happens to be someone who hosts this podcast. Yes. Yes. How yeah. odd that is. And yeah. it's more synchronicity because Young was all about synchronicity. Everything is just randomly happening together. It's not at all because Nigel. <laughs> Many miles away on a dark Scottish lake. <laughs> so this episode is another big deal. Mark Aramini was so nice to come along on this chapter to talk about Severian's participation in this play about his own life. Actually, Mark said, I will be a part of this chapter. And we said, yes, Mark. <laughs> it's kind of his preview and warm up because he's going to help us when we get to the actual play later yeah. on. So this is this is his little prep time to get that thing ready. <laughs> so, you know, what can we say except break a leg, Severian? No, we don't mean that literally. <laughs> he will eventually, though. eventually he will in fact break a leg injure his leg (laughs) right this is chapter 32 the play let's recap it's the evening after Severian beheaded Agilus making Agia his sworn lifelong enemy for not dying and then doing a job that somebody was going to do anyway Severian and Dorcas see a miracle. 
an icon in the sky. All right, I'm going to jump in here real quickly and just and just say there was something very important that came between those two events. So he's executed a G-list, as you call him, and he has given a Gia like a coin, right? He's like, here you go. And she just kind of throws it in the in the dirt there because he thought that she was in his saber tash looking for money, right? That's the lie that Aguilas told him. But really, she was trying to get the claw. And this is the moment. This is the moment before the tent appears where he's looking in his saber tash and suddenly he finds it, the claw, the conciliator. And almost instantly, as if through some divine hand, right, or deus ex machina, the thing, the vision appears in the sky there. And so I want to talk about those juxtapositions a little bit more when we get down to what this is. So go ahead and tell us what it is, this icon in the sky. It's the Temple of the Pelerines, shining in the night sky like an apparition in a medieval Arthurian tale. And then it winks out, and now it's the end of the third day since Severian left the Madagen. So they continue walking down the road over the hill and then follow a winding road down the hill into darkness. They've had a kind of religious experience upon seeing the temple in the sky. Severian says, our spirits embraced without hindrance, each passing through those few seconds of vision as if through a door never previously opened and never to be opened again. Let's talk about that real quickly. That's pretty interesting. Our spirits embrace without hindrance. And here I'm assuming he's talking about Dorcas as well, that they've had this kind of communion by seeing this in the sky. Now, this is at a very interesting point because before this, he had talked about how he felt about Aegea, you know, how even if he kind of poured himself into her like a thousand times, he would still leave not knowing her. And here they've had this moment where he feels like he really, I think, understands Dorcas in a way that he hasn't with any of the previous women in his life. And so I think this is such an important sequence of events where he executes this guy, finds the claw, this temple springs into being in the sky, Mm -hmm. and then he shares this transcendent moment. And I think this is a pattern that's going to be repeated later. So I'm going to talk about this pattern in a more symbolic way um, after you tell us where they're going in the dark. And just one other thing about the phrasing there, there is kind of a stepping out of time just a little bit because he points to passing through those few seconds of vision as if, you know, there's something about that time was different and it's not a big thing, but just with all the other emphasis on time that happens later on to talk about this inner encounter with that higher meaning or a vision or something as being a different kind of experience of time. That's pretty significant to me and something that we can develop later in what it really means. But at the very least, Wolf mm. is kind of signaling here that their experience of time when they're in the presence of this other meaning, at least a Severian feels very different. Right. And it's been related in the past with his uh, sojourn in the the botanical garden there where he was looking at the bush and he said there was a woman waiting for me that I was going to encounter. And so here I think is that woman. Dorcas is there with him. And so he had that sense of her even back then. And he's going to have that sense of her when he returns to Nisus at the very end up the river there. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you. And that's a good point, too, that because when we when that had come up before you were with us and you were talking about that being Dorcas and I thought it was Thecla that he's feeling it may be a different time. Maybe you're right. Maybe this is a place where I might change my mind a little well, bit. Yeah, of course I'm right. Well. You know me. <laughs> so they walk without knowing where they're going. They cross an arched bridge at the bottom of the hill. They turn onto another road. They walk beside a wooden fence for a league or so. That means they walked 
beside it for an hour or so. A league is a measure of time as much as distance. They just walk along talking about the vision and its possible meanings. Severian says that it was only upon seeing this vision that he realized he had fallen in love with Dorcas. Do you think we're supposed to take anything from that? Probably a little bit. When, you know, when they start this walk, they after the vision, Dorcas is to him nothing but just an attractive someone that he met by chance and happens to be sharing company with. But by the end of the walk, after this talk, he realizes that he's fallen in love with her, that he loved Dorcas in a way that I have never loved another human being. And before you say, what about Thecla? He wants us to know that he did not love her because he had come to love Thecla less. No, by loving Dorcas, I had loved Thecla more because Dorcas was another self, another aspect of himself, just like Thecla will be another self for him, quote, in a fashion as terrible as the other was beautiful. And I want to say something here real quickly, because we have just seen, uh, I think, two sides of a coin at the risk of not being very original in my metaphor here, because the Gianagilas have just kind of had that overt overt and in the open incestuous relationship. And then Severian has cut off the head of one of them and uh, earned the enmity of the other. And here he is finding true love in what is also an incestuous relationship on the other side of discovering the claw there. And so there's all kind of interesting parallels in this where he's finding himself by finding someone that is incestuous. Now, it is reaching back into the past rather than in the same generation. And I wonder if that is any motif or thematic echo or difference there. But we have two incestuous cases very close together, and they have very different outcomes, even if we take it to the ultimate end there where he tries to preserve Dorcas's life. And so I think it's interesting to think about that as well. And I suppose that she is kind of an aspect of him in an, an old way. I, I don't remember whose idea it was, but I remember the drawing of each sperm containing an endless succession of generations. Right, right. When he's down with Master Alton, yeah, where he's talking about how the face of, of a man will be carried on in that tiny drachm of fluid, smaller than the smallest fingernail. Right. Yeah, that what then contains the essence of a man. And certainly I think that was something that resonated when he was there with Dorcas in the lake. Yeah, it really, I think, is something important to keep in mind. In a way, Severian is in Dorcas, right? Yes, she's in him. She's in him for sure. Yeah. But he is in her, right? His potential, yeah. Because Owen is going to come out of her and then Severian is going to come out of Owen. Well, he was in her. Now he's yeah. kind of he's kind of free. But yeah. yeah. Well, I know, but but not from Dorcas's point of view, right? She's, well, I guess that's right. because she's, she's already given birth. birth. Yeah, she's yeah. already given birth. So just to play devil's advocate, just for the fun of it, the one thing though is this could be one of those places where he's defending himself because he feels guilty about something, about the idea that, hey, I don't want you to think that I didn't think about Thecla. <laughs> Mainly also because it is another moment where if you're going to play the game of finding places where Severian is, you know, using women for the wrong reasons or covering up 
different things about it. This is a place that seems ripe for that kind of interpretation because it could be saying, well, did you really care about Thecla that much? Because now you're turning on to this other woman, especially when it was a bunch of chapters ago, but in time, it's only a couple of days ago where he's talking about, I couldn't survive. I couldn't live, but for feeling bad for Thecla, right? And then he goes and, and sees Asia and everything turns around. So this is another moment where he's bringing it up and he's saying again, you know, don't, don't think I didn't love Thecla, where it, it feels feels maybe a little bit like he's way too defensive about that. The many loves of Dolby Gillis. <laughs> now, see, this is the thing. I am so much less skeptical of Severian and his motives than everybody that I know. <laughs> like, you know, they say, oh, I, I really don't doubt that he has these feelings. And I don't think that he's using these women because they are almost Jungian archetypes that help in his own passage toward development. So Thecla serves a very particular purpose in his development. And so does Dorcas here as this maternal figure that is also wiser to the world than he is. And that's going to be an irony that's going to come up when they run into Talos in a little bit here. Even though she's this young looking girl, she's experienced death. She's experienced childbirth. She's experienced so much. And even if she can't remember it, she still has this innate wisdom that she's acquired through a hard, hard life that I think is important. And Aegea too has these conniving things. They talk about how she thinks. And so I think that they're all very important to his development and that really Severian is not as exploitative as a lot of people like to, you know, engender him or imagine him. And that these are thematic, symbolic kind of associations he naturally forms on that hero's journey that is more mythical than realistic. And so I always keep that paradigm in mind that this is more like a medieval tale of, you know, a guy developing himself as he travels almost that every man rather than just here's this skeptical postmodern character and we can't believe a damn word that he says. Right. So that's kind of the approach that I take. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think when it comes to women, Severian's somewhat of a naif. He, is, he just kind of wanders through and they all know what's going on. He has no clue. <laughs> Had to bring it up, though, because I figured you'd have a good response to it. <laughs> Definitely. And I think it's worth talking about because you hear it so much. Severian says, if I love Thecla, Dorcas loved her also. Uh, that's romantic. And probably for that reason, I don't get it. Well, I, I sort of get it, but not really. It actually would make more sense if it was switched, right? If I loved Dorcas, Dorcas Thecla too, because that uh, could be it. Yeah. Right. Right. I do think that this is another point where he's kind of assimilating Dorcas into himself. And this is what his ultimate role is going to be. When asked why he is the head of his race and why he is preserving to remain after the cataclysm that comes, spoilers, obviously, right? They say, hey, because you contain so many things, you contain multitudes, you're kind of like a legion in a good way, right? Not in necessarily that that pig demon way, right? But in, in, in a better way that you contain these multitudes. And so Dorcas is a part of him in that love that she has, and he's going to preserve her as well. So I think, um, I think this is an overt symbolizing of what Severian is going to internalize later. And we can talk about that more later. I don't want right. to bog us down. <laughs> well, Dorcas asks if Severian thinks anyone saw the vision, but just those, them too. Severian figures that even if, Tens of millions of people in Nessus didn't see it. You know, hundreds must have. But Dorcas asks, what if it were a vision meant only for the two of them? Zavarian says, I have never had a vision, Dorcas. Well, Dorcas doesn't know if she's had one either. 
her only memory is of water and herself. Let's pause right there real quickly because, all right, this is actually one point where I, I'm like, is it true that Severian has never had a vision up till now when he's seen, uh, when he was drowning in the Giol, he saw those things and heard a woman murmuring, he could hear a woman talking and he could see Mount Rubius at his elevation. So, I mean, what does it mean when he says, I've never had a vision? And is that... Uh, I don't know. I think if he thought a little more carefully, he wouldn't say that, honestly. There's also the two images that he says he always had in his mind, which I guess technically aren't visions, but the idea of the... The flambeau. The image of, mm-hmm. you know, the sun exploding and then the image of the... the but doesn't he say almost like a vision? Yep. Like, doesn't he say those words? I got to go back and, and look at and that. And of the now. growing things. Well, Severian does refer to the event at the Guile as a vision. He explicitly calls it a vision. But it's it's not a religious vision. I don't think it's a vision the way Dorcas means it, right? Something sent by God. You know, that's more of a hallucination or a dream, a memory, but not the way Dorcas means it. Dorcas, she talks about her memory. She says everything before that, before she woke up in the water, is like a vision shattered to pieces. Only small, bright bits. A thimble I saw laid on velvet once and the sound of a small dog barking outside a door. Nothing like this. Nothing like what we've seen. Right. I I think it's right to ascribe a religious signification to vision here. Severian, at this point, has a series of free associations at that. His mind goes the way mine does when I read this book. Her statement about her memory made him think of the note, which made him uh, remember searching for it in his saber tash and finding the claw. And that made him think of the brown book, which was also in his saber tash. Hey, Dorcas, you want to see the brown book that used to belong to Thecla? Uh, there's a deliberate, at this point, there's a deliberate equating of Thecla and Dorcas. Not just here, but continuous. And Dorcas says, yeah, let's go to that inn and sit by the fire and read it. Severian realizes that he has to return the claw, that relic, before he can leave the city. But it reminds him of something that he read about in the brown book. He says, do you know the key to the universe? And Dorcas, of course, thinks that's funny. No, no, no. What he means is that does she know about the idea that the universe has a secret key. He says, a sentence or a phrase, some might even say a single word that can be wrung from the lips of a certain statue or read in the sky, or that an anchorite on a world across the seas teaches his disciples. An anchorite is a religious hermit. Dorcas says that babies know that secret before they learn to speak, but they forget most of it before they talk. And that's what someone told her once. And yeah, that's what he's talking about. The Brown Book, a collection of myths of the past, has a section listing all the things that people have said were the secret key of the universe after they had talked to the mystagogues on far worlds or studied on the the popova of the magicians or fasted in the trunks of holy trees. A mystagogue is someone who spreads a mystical doctrine and a Popova, well, the Popova is a collection of Mayan myths, including the origin of Quetzalcoatl. And that is where the concept of the new sons is detailed. And that is why, I suppose, Wolf set the story in South America. 
Well, listen to our bonus episode with John Crowley. So real quickly, I just want to back up just a second. So we're talking about the secret key to the universe, right? And almost it's like uh, a word that could be wrung from the lips of a certain statue or something you get from talking to a mystagogue on a far world or even someone who had fasted in the trunks of holy trees. And now I am going to say that there are a lot of metonymic associations in that string of thoughts, because when we get to the play again in Claw the Conciliator, when he goes there, he will have this almost mystical experience looking into the Vatic Fountain, and he'll see all this water, and he'll head through the gate of trees um, and encounter those weird statues, maybe of the eponyms there, those giant white statues whose faces are based on the faces that he kind of um, thinks that the Herodules have behind all the masks, right? So, so they have those beautiful kind of unearthly faces, and those faces are also mirrored in Master Ash at the last place that Master Ash is preserving there against Ragnarok future. So the statues are mentioned in several weird places and it's never clear what they are. But here we have knowledge as something from the statues. Knowledge is something from someone who's fasted in the trunk of a holy tree. Now, if there was one character that you said who fasted in the trunk of a holy tree in a symbolic way in Book of the New Sun, who might that be? Who might be someone who never has to eat and is associated with trees? The green man. The green man. And guess what? Guess what? Guess what? When Aegea and the green man rescue Severian at the very end of the book, he looks back at the face of the green man and he sees that it's the face of a statue of the eponyms made in jade. So all these things are really linked up and connected. And there's that moment of mercy there that almost follows a plan where he has executed someone and earned the enmity of Aegea, but she's still going to serve a higher purpose with the green man later. And so I think that's part of the mystery. Part of that mystery is that all these things are going to serve a higher purpose later. Well, hold one second. I do like that a lot. The other thing I was thinking about is he talks about how there's the legend of Imar who sat beneath the tree. Yes, it was Imar. There was a wise man who was sitting under the tree and he went and sat next to him. Under the tree. And so then he got up and left when the dog came by after he didn't follow like the woman and the rich man and the soldier only the dog convinced him and i think i talked about this on the last episode maybe i'm not sure but he does try to follow triskel on the beach there at the very end when malrubius appears and he runs into that bush that has the claw again and he malrubius tells him you can't follow him you can't go where he's going yet um and so there's that like transcendent moment where he wants to follow this vision. Before the play actually appears in Claw the Conciliator, Dorcas is talking about Baldanders and how he looks at Talos. And Severian says that Talos is looking at Baldanders like a son. And then Dorcas is like, no, you've got it all wrong. Baldanders is looking at Talos like the son. And, you know, imagine how when you look at your dog, what do people see when you look at your dog that way? And so all those things kind of recur and come back and they're associated with the play as well. And so I think it's important to put them all together because Wolf, I think, really does work in these vague symbols. And when you put them all together, they start to make a kind of thematic argument and sense that I think is very rich and important to understand. 
and this is actually, I think, something that we should talk about because it's going to come up again. I think Wolf is a pattern writer and that he creates meaning by juxtaposing two things and putting them close together. And that so often when things are repeated in a particular sequence, it creates kind of new meanings for them, like the tree in peace, you know, that becomes associated with death. Um, and I'll talk about what this play actually means in a little bit when we get to the, the chapter of this title. This is another thing that's juxtaposed at a very particular place when it comes up again. And so... Wolf creates those meanings by placing things right next to each other. And I feel like you can't get that. You can't get the total impression when you're just doing like a word search. You know, you can kind of be like, okay, it's here, but you don't get the big picture. And that's why I have to reread Wolf so often until the whole narrative sits in my mind. And I can say, wait, every single time, let's say there's a spew of water or some seminal imagery in Wizard Knight, almost immediately, then this thing happens again. Um, so you can see those patterns and they create something that you start to understand in a very, very different way when you see them all together like that. But I think that's very important for reading Wolf, is, is seeing those big patterns. One one last little point, just when he talks about babies forgetting before they're born, that's very platonic. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up platonic moment. Yeah, it's what Timaeus, that we've, uh, mm -hmm. our souls forgotten who they are. So one of the secret keys of the universe that Severian remembers is that everything, whatever happens, has three meanings. And this is something that you've talked about, Craig. It's something I remember being explained in sermons and churches about the Bible. Yeah. It comes from the third century theologian origin, or at least through him. He called them the one, the, the somatic or literal philological sense or two, the psychic or moral sense, the application of the Bible to our current situation. And three, the spiritual sense or mystical sense, understandable only to those who are fully mature in their spiritual growth. It's understood through allegory. That's the way to find the hidden sense behind the text. So Severian's three meanings are the first, the practical meaning, origin somatic sense, the thing the plowman sees, the cow has taken a mouthful of grass, and it's real grass and a real cow. And then the second, what every event or object means to every other event, the soothsayer's meaning. Every object is in contact with all others, and so you can learn of other objects by observing the first one. And this is like Origen's moral sense or psychic sense, which is why the Brown Book associates it with soothsayers. It's the practical sense telling us what to do. Severian says it's called the soothsayers, meaning because they use it when they prophesy a fortunate meaning or the tracks of serpents to confirm the outcome of a love affair with tarot cards, or as Severian put it, by the elector of one suit atop the patroness of another. I guess the elector is the king, patroness is like the queen. He says, quote, the third meaning is the transubstantial meaning, and this is like origin's mystical sense. Since all objects have their ultimate origin in the pan-creator, and all were set in motion by him, so all must express his will, which is the higher reality. And then, of course, obviously, it actually directly applies to a situation as well, right? Because he is the child of the child of Dorcas, and neither of them have any memory or knowledge of that at this particular point. So it's almost like there is a knowledge. He knows that she is him, 
somehow, but he doesn't have the actual knowledge of that until later, but he knows it anyway. So it's like, yeah, this knowledge that's there without an actual cause or effect or reason. It's just kind of innate. I think it's fascinating. The only thing about this that always confused me a little bit, not not confused, but when I was in grad school, I did a lot of medieval stuff and the medieval, the, the, I mean, you mentioned origin and origin is good because he actually has three, but the vast majority of allegorical interpretation always took four types. There were four things. Yeah, that's uh I knew that from Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas, yeah. And so the difference with the where it all comes from is like four different ways to read the Bible. And there's the sort of literal meaning that you get. There's the moral meaning, which is about how you can apply it to your life. Then the last two are what Wolf kind of collapses into the into one, I think. But there's first of all, there's the one where it's about how it affects your faith, sort of how what it has means theologically. But then there's the uh, the one that has the name anagogical, which is more about how it's going to prophesy something for the future for for specifically Christian or uh, eschatological meaning. Right. And right here, this is exactly how I read this book. Right. I think that Wolf is overtly stating the way that you should read this particular series of books, that it seems like you have evil. It seems like you have all these things that are not related. And then when you get down to the heart of them, Aegea saves Severian. Aegea is the instrument through which he got the claw of the conciliator and experienced this moment of communion with Dorcas. Now, I do think that that incest between Agilus and Aegea is kind of part of the problem of Earth. It's been stuck. And that's what the play is about. It's been stuck with the winter-killed stocks of our old breed, really, right, are there. And they're breeding with each other. And there's nothing new that's coming. It's kind of in this rut And it's in this do-nothing future that Wolf has talked about in interviews there. But, you know, there's still this transcendence that's there. And even that second meaning, when you talk about how objects touch other objects, I think that too flows from that beautiful scene at the end on the beach where you have, this is a holy relic because all things are holy relics. Everything has touched the hand of the pan creator and it will continue forward like that. So I think that this philosophy right here is embedded, particularly in New Sun. And I think Wolf does this in his other books as well, where you have the base meaning, a symbolic association, and then the higher will of God that really kind of organizes everything such that good is done in the long run. Even if we get to the end of the book and we're like, wow, that was the most depressing ending I think I've ever read in my life. Everybody's dead. Well, maybe something more happened there beyond that. Maybe it expresses a higher will. And so I really do see this as one of the primary arguments of this book that these things have a meaning like that. And it's so great because we, what do we have? What are we talking about? This random temple that appeared in the sky after the claw of the conciliator was revealed and, and Severian had this epiphany with Dorcas there. So um, I just think that this is so vitally important that, I, you know, I'll go on and on about it forever. So I'll stop now and let us continue. But I think it's important. Okay, that's really cool because I think you read my mind because that's where I was kind of trying to go with some of this about that what he doesn't have necessarily is that, I mean, we were just talking about the third one as a prophecy or something that leads to, like you've been pointing out, ways that certain symbols recognize something that's going to happen in the future. But to have that without faith is really interesting. And that also connects to a lot of the ways that the book tries to very intentionally make religious seeming things have science fictional explanations, which is exactly what we're talking about. And what he specifically brings up later with the 10, like when the kid 
you know, sees that, oh, well, hot air makes something rise. Okay, well, it's not magical anymore. So it, it's not a wonder. It's not meaningful anymore. And he forgets it. But the whole point here is that, no, 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 they're all there. So maybe, yeah, leaving the faith component out of it, maybe that was intentional. Uh, maybe that very much was saying that in the end, that component may be less important than the the actual structure. And I don't want to get too theological and say maybe that's the Catholic thing <laughs> going on. I don't you know. I mean, if you're going to go with the easy, easy Catholic versus Protestant works versus faith. So it certainly fits that pattern. I don't know if that's actually what he was going for, but it does hit something. Right. Like that. In this one, in this one, I don't think faith is important. And I think this is one of those weird moments where, I mean, it might diverge just a little bit from traditional Catholic dogma, but does believing in something honestly matter that much in Wolf or does acting like it, even if you don't believe it, have the same result? So yeah, I can see why Wolf, you know, given his patterns, that maybe the conscious knowledge and faith is the least important of these things because symbols operate without that knowledge or without belief in them. They just work anyway. There's something else there, though, that the, the idea that you don't have to have any knowledge of something for it to function. And then there's the idea that he says later that maybe the creator, the pan creator, set up the rules of reality so that one day that tent could expand and, and fulfill its transubstantial meaning such that it's not just a physical cause or that all physical causes will ultimately serve that same glorious end rather than just, oh, hot air makes stuff rise. Maybe it makes it rise because this symbol was needed at that time. And I really like that inversion of cause and effect and even logic. I think it's it's fascinating and, and, and you know, it's, I read this book and I see something so religious and so spiritual and a lot of people read it and they're like, oh, I don't see any religion or spirituality in it. And every time I picked it up, it's like this numinous thing, but it's not really about faith as much as spirituality and this almost profound power of things to work of themselves that I think is, is just, it's just neat. So Dorcas says, you're saying that what we saw was a sign. But Severian explains that according to the Brown book, everything is a sign. The post of that fence is a sign, and so is the way the tree leans across it. Some signs may betray the third meaning more readily than others. As I mentioned in the Crowley bonus episode, I think this statement reveals the way that Hamlet's Mill's interpretation of mythology and cosmology affects affected Gene Wolfe the Christian. The stars are signs as well, which is exactly what ancient people, all people until quite recently, believed. So they walk in silence and Dorcas says that they saw the temple, quote, leap into the air and fall to nothing. But Severian corrects her. I only saw it suspended over the city. Did it leap? And that's an interesting question. This sort of discrepancy is often debated regarding miracles. Dorcas confirms it did leap. She says, it seems to me that if what the Chatelaine Thecla's book says is true, then people have everything backwards. It seems to me that what you call the third meaning, the transubstantial meaning, origin's mystical meaning, that meaning is very clear. But the second meaning, the practical, allegorical, psychic, or soothsayer meaning, is harder to find. And the first, the literal or somatic meaning, which ought to be the easiest, is impossible. And so the literal plot explanation is nearly impossible. Well, 
Uh, that's certainly true in your world, dear Dorcas, because that's the one that Gene Wolfe made for you. I mean, at this point, for a first-time reader, it's quite easy to imagine all sorts of transubstantial meanings, since it's the first thing we settle on here when we talk about the irresolvable mysteries of these chapters. And using them as guides to what Severian would or should do and what will happen next is harder. And in this case, for example, knowing what happened is frankly almost impossible. Severian is about to tell her that he agrees about the literal meaning, because what they saw is impossible to explain. But then they hear a rumbling roar. He says it might have been the roll of thunder. As they go toward it, Dorcas begins to hear voices, and it's Talus's play. But this slow reveal is interesting because it presents even the lead up to the next events, the signs of the play as symbols of the upcoming future events. I'm going to jump in here real quickly. So we have this idea that the signs of the play are symbols of upcoming future events. And I think that can't be stressed enough as well, because when he meets the autark, right, and he sees that vision that he's going to encounter and he kind of bleeds blood from his forehead and he has that hydromancy chapter at the Vatic Fountain. And then he leaves, guess where? Through the gate of trees, where just like a fence post or a random tree across something is a symbol. Yes, it's it's the symbol there. Those trees show up again. He leaves through the gate of trees there. He runs into the statue and he runs once again into this play about to be performed where they're setting it up. So this is going to happen again in Claw the Conciliator right after he has that vision of the Herogamate kind of floating in space there like this weird, you know, larval butterfly creature. Um, and he's going to encounter that someday. And so all this is being set up as prophetic, I think, because it's right after the Vatic Fountain. And then in Claw the Conciliator, when this happens, he keeps talking about how Dorcas was scared of water, how she would only bathe in like, you know, the barest little amount of water. She wouldn't submerge her body. And then he takes Jalenta out on the boat there over the water and he tries to get with her, but she falls asleep. And we have that infamous scene there. Well, Jolenta says beforehand that it's going to be her last performance of the play, that she can feel it. She knows it somehow. And this is in Call the Conciliator. And when she says that, she says, hopefully I'll catch the eye of the autark or someone. And it's so ironic because she does, right? She's there. She's there with the autark, the future autark, the once and future autark, really. Um, and she's going to be with him. And so everything that she says she's going to do, she actually does. But then this play happens and it is so much a mixing of past and future events. Like when Severian is arrested, it's like what, what's going to happen in the play there when Meshia and Meshian are arrested and kind of put put in that, that small room there to, to undergo excruciations or whatever. But then it also foretells the future in such a way. And so we have this play set up as all of these signs that are going to be given very cogent meaning and very specific meanings, especially water, right? That hydromancy, especially fecundity, because what is sexual intercourse? It's the idea that we're going to propagate. And what's the intercourse that we've been seeing lately? It's all incestuous, Aegea and Aegilus. And then Severian doesn't sleep with Aegea, right? But he does sleep with Dorcas before this. And so it's all incestuous, but maybe that's going to change. And the play is going to be about these women like Jahi and the Contessa wanting to have 
themselves preserved somehow in the future strains because first Jahi was supposed to burn the seed of tomorrow, but then she was almost corrupted by it and came to serve it at the end there. And uh, the Contessa as well, when she sees this vision on the path of air, it's something I think I don't understand. Well, that vision is actually going to be Severian in Earth of the New Sun. So we get this idea that these signs are about both past and future. And it seems so clear to me that they're allegorically invested in that flooding imagery in the trees and what's going to come next. And so when I read so much of this book, I feel like it becomes almost solved in a way by what's going to happen in Earth. But that if he had never written Earth of the New Sun, we could have a fruitful argument about what these symbols mean. But as it is, I think they have such a concrete meaning that is so firm and so ensconced in text that the play is one thing to me. Every time I read it, I see it for kind of a literal, a literal transubstantiation where it's all of those things that they've just talked about in one. And so I think it's such a neat way to put his conclusion in the book before he ever wrote that fifth volume. So I will let, let us go back to this idea of signs in the play. Now. Sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Well, Severian sees the gleam of lights through a grove of young beeches ahead of them to the north. Dorcas points to a light and says, that can't be a star. It's too low and too bright and moves too quickly. Let's pause real quickly there again. Sorry. So here, through the, the groove of young beaches, oh, something that looks like it's a star, right? But it really couldn't be. And this is also something that's going to happen. So every time I read this chapter, that feeling of prophecy really does because what's going to happen? Well, this new sun is going to come, this flambeau, this miraculous star. And so I think it's so pointed. All right. Severian says that it's a lantern on a wagon or it's being carried. And now they know the sound is a drum roll. Now Severian can hear the voices and on particularly, and a particularly very deep, loud voice. It's a lantern, I think, on a, on a wagon perhaps or carried in someone's hand. Let me try well, forget about that that quote. That is, you X that out, Craig. At last, they round the edge of the copse, a word that comes up in books all the time, and I always have to think about what it means. A copse is an isolated thicket or grove. In this case, it's the stand of young beeches. So they move around the copse, and they see about 50 people around a platform, torches on either side. And Baldanders is standing there with a kettle drum under one arm beating it. And Talos is on his right, richly dressed, but also nearly naked. <laughs> and to Baldanders' left is Jalenta, the skinny waitress transformed beyond recognition. But Severian doesn't name them here. Baldanders is a giant and Talos is a small man. And Jalenta is, quote, the most sensuously beautiful woman I have ever seen. It's been 16 chapters since Severian last saw Baldanders and Talos, and the first time, and a first-time reader might have actually forgot about them. As for Jalenta, Severian doesn't recognize her from his breakfast two days earlier and doesn't openly connect her to the skinny unnamed waitress who served them until after her death at the end of Claw the Conciliator. At one point, he calls Jalinta, quote, the most beautiful woman in the world. But you'll see that his assessment changes by the time they get to the house. Absolute. Talos says, everyone here, everyone here, 
What would you have? Love and beauty? Gesturing to Jalenta. Strength and courage? To Bald Anders. Deception and mystery? He points to himself. Vice? Bald Anders again. And then he sees Severian approaching. And look here. Look who's just come. It's our old enemy, Death, who's always... Who always comes sooner or later? Death, death has come. I doubted you in the pe- these. I doubted you these past two days, old friend. I ought to have known better. And who is it he has brought with him? Innocence, I believe. Yes, it is innocence. Now everyone is here. The show will begin in a moment or two. Not for the faint of heart. You have never seen anything like it. Anything at all. Everyone is here now. So here where he brands uh, Severian as death and Dorcas as innocence, later on, right before the actual play is given in Claw, Dorcas will bring this up and she'll say, you know what? He bandies about those terms as if they were the truth. And even though he's not lying, he's using those metaphors and symbols as if they were a lie. They're, 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 they're used in a bad way. And so she directly addresses, you know, calling Severian death because to hint to her, to her, Severian is life. You know, that's what she says to him. You're not death at all. You're life that you've given me that life and you've given me hope. Then he realizes that maybe calling her innocence was also completely, you know, a complete misapprehension of, of what actually was going on, that it was a mistake of the same manner that was being made there, a metaphor that was bluntly used incorrectly. And the day before, just the night before, 24 hours from this point, as the sun was going down, Dorcas plucked up a daisy and put it in her hair, which is, of course, a sign of innocence. And she was walking along with Severian in his Phylogen cloak, so black that Severian didn't think anyone would be able to actually see him, would think she was walking alone. So, you know, he's we're actually carrying forward this metaphor. And Talos is picking up a metaphor to compare them both that Severian has already noted. The other thing is that he's bringing up the same image of death and the maiden just like came up in the jungle hut where Robert is saying, you know, this is death and the maiden. Can't you see them? And Talos is basically saying the same thing that here comes death and the maiden. But do you prefer your maiden's brunette or blonde? This is a different That's maiden. true. That's true. I think traditionally she's supposed to be blonde, so maybe this is a little more like it than Asdia. Yeah. 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 Severian says that their reappearance here, quote, seemed inevitable as soon as I had recognized them. Any speculation as to why he would feel that way about them? Well, um, you know, I do feel that Talos knows some things. Now, in the past, Craig has talked about Talos's motivations in writing the play. And I've always said that it's transubstantially true, like the dreams at the end. They're, they're true, right? They're, they may not be exactly literal, but they're true. And so it's, it's almost as if Talos is in this position to have knowledge that he couldn't have normally gotten. Like, how would he know all of this stuff? But it's been passed down, it's been transformed, and somehow that truth is still coming out. And so I think something of that knowledge there, what is he writing about? He's writing about the new son, he's writing about Severian. It's only appropriate that it seems inevitable that Severian would show up about a play that's really about him. That's the inevitability. And like these people can feel these things, even if they don't have some conscious knowledge of them. 
The other thing, too, is that it's Talos who brings up later that, hey, you know, our experience right here is reaching back through time to cause Frankenstein. Right. So he's the one who full on says even things from the future can affect the past. And it's those symbols working through time. Talos's introduction seems to be bombing. No one laughs. Some mutter to themselves. And an old lady spits into her palm and points two fingers toward the ground, which I think is supposed to be a rude gesture. But Severian credits Talos with certain rhetorical powers. He didn't even notice Jalinta retreating from the stage. Now, to Severian, in the middle of it, Talos's play is just confusion. But he'll break down the play, and he says that to the audience, it's still pretty incredible. There's five cast members. Two of them just walked on stage without knowing anything. But, quote, armies marched. Orchestras played, snow fell, and earth trembled. Dr. Talos demanded much from the imagination of his audience, but he assisted that imagination with narration. Simple, yet clever machinery, shadows cast upon screens, holographic projectors, recorded noises, reflecting backdrops, and every other conceivable slight. It's a pretty amazing production that he and Baldanders have been carrying on with just the two of them for years now. At the end, Talos had the audience crying, shouting, and sighing. And although he captured the audience's emotions, Severian says that Talos failed because Talos wanted to convey, quote, a great tale that had being only in his mind but it could only be reduced to, quote, common words. And neither the actors nor the audience could have any clear understanding what that tale was. All right, I'm going to bust in here for a second. Now, all right, so if you guys promise, I know this is out there a ways, if you guys promise to have me back when the, the play actually occurs in Claw, I won't talk about it too much here. But, <laughs> but Remember, you're going to do the work for us, so yeah. Okay, awesome. I'm, I'm totally intimidated by the play, so that's no problem. So I won't talk about it very much here because he's going to say, oh, there's a more appropriate time that I'm going to deal with all of that. But it's interesting that he sees it as a failure because it doesn't convey what it's supposed to mean. And I do think that at times Wolf has the these little metatextual jokes that he plays on readers, and that this is one of them, that, you know what, nobody's going to be able to figure out that this is the ending of my story. But, you know, it is, right? This is this is the end. This is the prophecy. This is everything that's going to be. And then we wouldn't even know it if he hadn't written Earth of the New Sun. And so I think that this here, a great tale that had being only in his mind, is that unwritten portion of the tale that, that Wolf really does invest so many of his stories with. And so we will come back to that next year, who knows when. Right. But we'll come back to that eventually. Uh, yeah. And like you say, uh, now we can see on rereading that this story truly is the book of the new sun. And we are that emotionally moved, but narratively bewildered audience. Talos himself said the story, quote, could only be expressed in the ringing of bells and the thunder of explosions and sometimes by the postures of ritual. Yet, as it proved in the end, it could not be expressed by even these. And there's that reference to those bells ringing. We've had four or five instances already, and you know, we're only getting started. So we get a general description of the play at this point. There was a scene in which Dr. Talos fought 
Baldanders until the blood ran down both their faces. There was another in which Baldanders searched for a terrified Jolinta in a room of an underground palace and at last seated himself on the chest where she had lay hidden. In the final part, Severian says, I held the center of the stage, presiding over a chamber of inquiry in which Baldanders, Dr. Talos, Jolinta, and Dorcas were bound in various apparatuses. As the audience watched, I inflicted the most bizarre, and had they been real ineffective, torments on each in turn. In this scene, I could not help but notice how strangely the audience began to murmur while I was preparing, as it seemed to wrench Dorcas's legs from their sockets. Though I was unaware of it, they had been permitted to see Baldanders was freeing himself. Several women screamed when his chain clattered to the stage. I looked covertly toward Talos for directions, but he was already springing toward the audience, having freed himself with far less effort. Talos shouts, Tableau! Tableau, everyone! And all the actors freeze. Notice that Severian is well aware that this, what the stage instruction means. We've noted before how theater is so ensconced in Severian's culture. Talos is going to hold off the conclusion of the play until the audience pays up. He says, Gracious people, you have watched our little show with admirable attention. Now we ask a bit of your purse as well as your time. At the conclusion of the play, you will see what occurs now that the monster has freed himself at last. Talos holds out a tall hat to collect donations. People have claimed that Talos' foxy description, in whole or in part, is a reference to the fox in the Disney movie Pinocchio. And here, at least, with evidence, Talos wears a top hat. So that's confirmed a little. Not that that is the only kind of tall hat, of course. For all I know, it's a, you know, a Korean gat. You can look it up, people. A few people put money in the hat, but not enough for Talos. He walks among them saying, remember that once he is free, nothing stands between him and the consummation of his brutal desires. Remember that I, his tormentor, am bound now at his mercy. Remember that you have never as yet learned, thank you for that coin, sir, the identity of the mysterious figure seen by the Contessa through the curtained windows. Thank you. That above the dungeon, you see now the weeping statue. Thank you for that. Still digs under the rowan tree. Come now. You have been very generous with your time. We ask only that you will not be penurious with your money. Penurious means stingy. So who is the figure that the Contessa saw through the curtain windows? I don't know. <laughs> well, in Earth of the New Sun, it's Severian. That's who she sees on the path of air there. So that's going to be answered eventually. And that weeping statue, that actually is a scene in the play where I think Jahi commands the statue to attack one of the guards. And so he's there. And I just love the quote that goes along with that scene. So this is um, the statue after it kneels and kisses Jahi's foot. Okay, I'm going to give the stage direction. This is on page 359 of the tour version in the actual play. The second soldier throws Jahi across his shoulder and runs. 
The door in the hill opens. He enters and it slams shut behind him. The statue hammers it with mighty blows, but it does not yield. Tears stream down his face. At last he turns away and begins to dig with his hands. And then the angel Gabriel from off stage says, Thus, stone images keep faith with a departed day, alone in the desert when man has fled away. And so that's the connotation of that other image, the weeping statue there. Okay, I want to step in here and kind of push back on your perspective, uh, because I think it has to do with the problem and the trickiness of symbols. Right. I think they're very straightforward. I think they're literal. I think they're one-to-one. And so, yeah, there's a difference in the way that we view these. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think Wolf is... I think Wolf messes with us with symbols, and sometimes he has them mean the opposite of what they're supposed to mean. Yeah, so Contessa looks through the curtained windows, and you know maybe it's Severian, or maybe that's another event that is evocative of that symbol as well, because symbols can mean, as Led Zeppelin has taught us, word can have two meanings. Yeah, because she's talking about, you know, when they took her and she saw this thing, something new we do not know, that she sees this man who keeps looking at her there through the curtain windows. And so we'll talk about this in a year, and I'll have, and I'll also have the Earth of the New Sun scene as well that matches it up. You see it from Severian's perspective on her in the path of air. So I think this is an event that is referred to three times. And what the hell does it mean? This is the problem. Who's the Contessa? Right in the big scheme of things, why is she important? She appears in the play. Severian looks at her. She appears in the second version of the play. And then she appears in Earth of the New Sun. It's like this very small character on the path of air. And that's what we see again. So this one thing happens, maybe, if, if you take my point of view. This one thing happens three times. And who the hell is the Contessa? I mean, you know, some people have theories about that. I think it's in a vital part where it's mentioned as one of the primary dominant images of the play is something so important. And so we'll come back to that when we have more information. But I think it definitely involves Severian and it definitely involves this woman who sees him in this mysterious passage through the curtain windows in such a way that it's it's mystifying. Yeah, no, I do agree that the play is allegorical. Frustratingly, it's scary <laughs> allegorical, but that's why we'll surely bring you in to advise us on that. Okay. Or to argue with. That's fun too. We, we will have a bloody fight. That'll be good. Okay. Wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> the fate of the earth rests on it. Yes, it certainly does. So I'm just curious too. We talked about Talos knowing things about that are going on in the play, but we didn't really talk about Baldanders. I mean, is he just kind of going along with this because it serves the general purpose of getting him money and he doesn't really care what Talos writes about? Because at the same time, it seems like if the play says what I think it says, then it also pretty much kind of damns Baldanders, at least says, you know, what you're doing is going to be fruitless. Well, um, okay, so... Baldanders has his own ambitions and they are very self-directed, right? Later on, he's been modifying himself so that he can basically be immortal. And this will come up later in Sword of the Lictor. And he has machinations toward the Herajules as well, right? He wants to gain their attention and their favor, but he's scorned in that final scene. And so this conflict between Baldanders and his self-directed science and something beyond the self 
that Severian's going to represent in that evolution to the next breed of what humanity will become and what the Herogametes and the Herogules and the heroes, what they will actually be. Um, so he's involved in that. He's interested in it, but he's so self-motivated that he doesn't see the bigger picture. He never does. And so I think it's totally appropriate that he's blind to the implications of the play and doesn't care about it because he's too busy worried about, I need to get back to my mansion or whatever, my castle on the shores there so that I can continue my research on myself. So yeah, I think it does damn him. But the giant nod in the play when we get to it has some very particular motivations as well. And Baldanders is very closely associated with nod in it. And so so I think we can talk about this more next, whenever we get to it again in Qual. You know, I used to see Bald Anders as a quasi-political figure in these, but lately, I just think Bald Anders, all he cares about is living forever and, and growing and can just continuing to exist. And I don't think he much cares about the implications of, of Earth or anything else. He knows he's going to outlast it. But, but he is very mad when the Herigules bow to Severian. And that's the moment when the claw is basically destroyed and Terminus est because in anger, he throws it out the window. Well, that's just because they're not helping him anymore. Right, right, they're, right. They used yeah. to be giving him all this help yeah, and now yeah. they're getting really stingy with it. So this is a little off, but did your ears perk up at that one passage in Interlibrary Alone where he's describing how viruses work? Baldanders is is connected there because he talks about how some creatures try to grow bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's foolish. But viruses are super smart because what they do is they reproduce themselves. Mm -hmm. And it seems so much like another fun way of messing with like things that grow bigger not being the right path, or at least not an effective path. Yeah, Interlibrary Loan is, by the way, here's a little pitch for Interlibrary Loan. It's a great legacy story for Wolf. He must have known this was going to be his last novel. And because he has all of these references to his past novels in them. And it's so mysterious. In a career of inscrutable and difficult novels, you get to the end of Interlibrary Loan, and you're like, maybe it won't be that difficult. And then you're at the end and you're like, what the hell, man? (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. I got to go back and look at this again. Talos continues, a few truly have treated us well, but we will not perform for a few. Where are the shining Asimi that should have showered into my poor hat long ago from the rest of you? The few shall not pay for the multitude. If you've no Asimis, then Orichorks. If you have none, surely there is not one here without an Aeus. Talos will not turn away any amount of money, even though he'll explain in Sword of the Lictor that he was designed not to care much about money, at least not for himself. When he finally gets enough money, Talos jumps back on the stage, ties himself down again to the table that, Severian says, quote, seemed to hold him in an embrace of spikes. Baldanders roared and stretched forth his long arms as though to grasp me, allowing the audience to observe that a second chain, unnoticed previously, still constrained him. Talos speaks, Sotto voce. In theater, sotto voce means to lower your voice for emphasis, you know, like when a character speaks an aside to the audience. That's true in this case, but it's also blocking instructions to Severian. He says, see him hold him off with one of the flambeaux. Severian said, "Uh, this is also good, Mark. Why don't you read this next section and we'll comment as necessary. Okay. 
I pretended to discover for the first time that Bald Anders' arms were free and plucked one of the torches from its socket at the corner of the stage. At once, both torches guttered. The flames, which had been of clear yellow above scarlet, now burned blue and pale green, spitting sparks and sputtering, doubling and rippling, tripling in size with a fearful hiss, only to sink at once as if on the point of going out. Really involved special effects there. Yeah, definitely. At Talos's further prompting, I thrust the one I'd uprooted at Baldander, shouting, No, no, back, back. Baldanders responded by roaring more furiously than ever. He strained at the chain in a way that made the scenery wall to which he was bound creak and snap, and his mouth began quite literally to foam, a thick white liquid running from the corners of his lips to bedew his huge chin and fleck his rusty black clothes as though with snow. Baldanders is a scientist, folks but he's also quite the actor. Or he's pretty rabid. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll continue for a little bit. Someone in the audience screamed, and the chain broke with a report like the snapping of a drover's whip. By this time, the giant's face was hideous in its madness, and I would no more have attempted to stand in his way than to stop an avalanche. But before I could move a step to escape him, he'd wrested the torch from me and knocked me down with its iron shaft. I got my head up in time to see him jerk the other torch from its place and make for the audience with both. The shrieking of men drowned the shrilling of women. It sounded as if our guild were exercising a hundred clients together. I pulled myself up and was about to seize Dorcas and dash for the cover of the copse when I saw Dr. Talos. He seemed filled with what I can only call malignant good humor. And though he was freeing himself from his fastenings, he was taking his time about it. Jolenta was setting herself free as well, and if there were any expression at all in that perfect face, it was one of relief. The play is over, folks. Talos has a method to bring the show to a climax and clear the audience quickly at the same time. And he also gets to collect twice if they leave anything behind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's the whole point. Yeah, he, yeah. he says, very well, very well indeed. You may come back now, Bald Anders. Don't leave us in the dark. And to Zavarian, he says... Did you enjoy your maiden experience on the boards, Master Torturer? I guess, you know, on the boards is a theater expression for being on stage. For a beginner acting without rehearsal, you played nicely enough. Except when Baldanders knocked you down. You must forgive him. He could see you didn't know enough to drop. And next he enlists Severian to help him pick up things the fleeing audience has dropped when they ran. Come with me now. Baldanders has his talents, but a fine eye for minutia lost in the grass isn't one of them. I have some lights backstage, and you and Innocence, he's talking about Dorcas, shall help us pick up. So I guess everyone except Baldanders searches in front of the stage with dim lanterns. He says that by the end of the first act, he can predict almost exactly how much money he'll get in the hat. But the, quote, dropsies, the things the audience drops when fleeing at the end of the show, is a gambling proposition. Sometimes he only gets two apples and a turnip, or sometimes so much more. Once someone left a piglet, he says Baldanders said it was delicious when he ate it. And some have suggested that Talos does eat, but not much, but we've never actually seen him do it. He says they once found a human baby, and I'm afraid he doesn't say what they did with him. Probably we should be grateful for that. He says, um, we have found a gold-headed stick, and I retain it. And this is his sword cane, the one that he was carrying when Severian first met him. And 
If it is Vodalus's sword cane, it means that Vodalus has seen this show and was no more fearless in the face of Baldander's acting than anyone else. It also undercuts, but only a little, the theory that in the first chapter, Severian time traveled to meet Vodalus digging up Thecla's grave. It means that that event, which surely happened while Severian was being held in custody at the Manichin, and Vodalus losing his cane were around two days apart because Severian meets Talos three days after Thecla's death. I'm just saying. Also found after the play, antique brooches, shoes of all kinds. This time, Talos finds a woman's parasol, a little shade umbrella. He'll use it to keep the sun from, quote, our fair Jalinta when we go strolling tomorrow. He'll keep it after he kicks her to the curb, too. But that, that parasol can't save her from the new sun. Yeah, that's true. There's an interesting physical description of Jalinta here. Jalinta straightened up as people do who are straining not to stoop. Above the waist, her creamly amplitude was such that her spine must have been curved backwards to balance the weight. She says, if we're going to an end tonight, I'd like to go now. I'm very tired, doctor. Severian is too. It's been a long day, but with, you know, beheading, the hike, the vision, starring in a play. But Talos says that that would be, quote, a criminal waste of funds. Anyway, you know, the nearest inn is an hour's walk away, and it would take over an hour to pick up the scenery and equipment, even with the help of this friendly angel of torment. So by the time they got to an inn, it would be morning, and people would be getting up and making a racket. Baldander's reaction is interesting. I wonder if you'll see anything to it. Baldander's grunted. I thought in confirmation, then struck with his boot as if at some venomous thing he discovered in the grass. It could just be a confirmation that, yeah, I think people are awful. Or maybe Talos's rhetoric at that point was some kind of explicit instruction for Baldanders. Anyway, he says how wonderful and comfortable it will be to sleep under the stars. And Severian asks if they have any food, since he and Dorcas haven't eaten since they left the Hall of Justice. And Talos says, well, of course, Baldanders has just picked up a basket of yams. The audience were farmers carrying produce that they were unable to sell in the market. And they also found, quote, a pair of squabs and several stalks of young sugarcane. A squab is a pigeon. I suppose these were in a cage. There was a little bedding, but not much, and Talos didn't sleep anyway. He said, quote, that he would sit up and watch the fire and perhaps nap later in the chair that had been the autarch's throne and the inquisitor's bench a short time before. Of course, he doesn't seem to need sleep. I think it is hinted that he's a kind of biological automatron. That is, I think he's only apparently sentient. And that's the end. What do you all think? Now, what do you mean apparently sentient? Like, Well, I think when he says that he reminds him of a stuffed fox on a wall, he's saying he's a dead thing. You stuff an animal so that it looks animated. It looks alive, but it's not. It has all the seemingness of being alive, but it's not. I don't know all that that's referring to, but I think that's part of what it is. Okay, so let's real quickly discuss whether we think something like Jonas is alive. Does Jonas exhibit free will? He, you know, he loves Jalenta. And so once again, Wolf has used a mirrored situation here because 
Talos does not love Jolenta. And, you know, there's a talk later that Talos, he's kind of perversely interested in her love conquest because it's like the triumph of his own art upon her, right? He's interested in his own art and how it works on her. And she's kind of in love with Talos. At least that's what Severian thinks at one point. He's like the only man she would willingly have given herself to is Talos. And so he's kind of this artificial mechanical man. And then this mechanical man, uh, Jonas, is infatuated with Jolenta and fallen in love with her. And there's so many interesting things that are paralleled and mirrored in that, just like the incest at the start of this particular chapter that we talked about. So I think he's sentient. I think he has motivations and desires. I think he's interested in taking care of Baldanders and it's not just programming. I think in Wolf, very rarely is an automaton or a robot or a computer just that. I think there's something more to them. Do they have a soul? I'm not sure that there's a soul there, but I think there's sentience. And I'm going to say even in some fashion, will to behave in a certain way that's not just programming. Sidero in Earth Anusen even talks about how they're moral, that they have morality too. And they can even break the rules. It says they just can't convince themselves that they were right for doing it, which I think is just one of my favorite things from that whole book. Well, I do think the robots are sentient. I do think that the robots have a soul. I think Jonas has a soul, but I'm not convinced that that Talos does. That's interesting. When you think about him wandering through Baldander's castle when he's showing Severian there the first time, and there's all of these people in vats and things. He says, why is he, you know, uh, why, why is he kidnapping all these people? And he says, oh, I don't know. Parts, maybe. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't. Really yeah, he could be thoroughly amoral, but I mean, the, to me, the thing that that makes it hard to take that route is just because he writes the play. Right. I think he's clearly sentient and he's so witty. Like there's a part where the waitress is sitting down or she says something like, oh, my uncle does it. And he's like, we don't want to hear about him right now or something like that. You know, he's funny. And there's all these little things in the play that are funny as well. These one liners that are clearly, I think, if you were looking for Talos's input, these little acerbic one liners that bite and have sting to them. I think that's a character trait that he has. And I think that's a, an example of sentience, you know, because Baldanders is about the most witless buffoon. He never says anything funny. He's not witty or humorous. And here is his creation is capable of things that he isn't capable of, I don't think. Well, I think his creation is delving back into some type of ancient knowledge. I think that's all embedded in here. But I think he is analogous to uh, what was the, what they call it? The, the, it was called the Turk or the, it was, it was an automatron that would go on tour and he would write letters and write poems and tell us is like that. Anyway, that's what I think. So thank you so much for the help, Mark. This means more than you'll ever know. Thank you guys for having me on and letting me ramble so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm having fun, if you can't tell. Anything you want to add to, Mark? Anything we didn't talk about from this one that you want to go back to? Uh, I had some other things, but I'm going to hold off until we actually get the play. My next guest appearance, hopefully, will delve into some of those things because I don't think they're in the text as much yet. But I do think that it's important to think about where this occurs in the novel, because we have an execution at the very end. We have the sudden revelation of the claw that does not actually explain everything that's going on in the way that it initially seems to. And then we have this play at the very end. And then we have that exit through the 
gate that's going to be coming up very soon here. And so this is kind of the high conclusion of the novel in a way. You read it and it doesn't seem really like a conclusion. You know, it's one of those narrative things where the pacing is strange. The pacing really is strange. So we get these big revelations mm-hmm. and then we get this, we don't even get the play here. We just get bits and pieces about it. And then we get this weird, oh, they scared the audience off. And then, okay, off we go. So I think Wolf does really interesting things with structure in his novels. And I think they always work better on rereading because you're not, you weren't trained, I don't think, to look for conclusions in the places that Wolf puts them. Even though he put this play at the conclusion here, he doesn't even put it there. He's like, I'm going to throw it somewhere else more appropriate. Mm-hmm. So we could have we could have got it here at the conclusion where that tent appeared and we had this numinous glory in this communion. And instead, <laughs> it's, you know, it's way somewhere else buried in the second book. And so those things with structure that Wolf does are just, they're fascinating, really, because the chapter title is the play and we don't even get it. But we're going to get it eventually, so I guess we should be happy. About it. Or, or something. We should be something about that, I guess. Yeah. It's also funny because he starts off the chapter with a theory of how to read something. And then he almost gives you something to read, but doesn't. And what you have to do then is apply that to everything else that's going on right now. Very cool. But thank you so much for having me on. I had fun. And... We certainly hope y'all have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints, and that you'll bring them to us on Facebook group, on the subreddit, Twitter, or email. You can find out how to do all that on the show notes. Leave an Apple podcast review and tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the more favor you. Take care, everybody. He's on the stage. Let me find my place again now. Where the guy is saying, um, oh, what's his name? Oh, why do I always forget his name? You know, that's like learning learning how to fight by playing a video game. I'm going to look right now and see how many times vision is used in this book. James is now a digital humanities scholar. Wow. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Forget memorizing the whole thing. And there are tenured people now who basically got their position because... They got there right at the beginning of the internet and could do all sorts of digital humanity stuff, which basically meant, yeah, having e-texts and searching for words. (laughs) It's called a skeleton for a reason.